I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Jonah, chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 17. The book of Jonah might take you a minute to find it. If you get to Matthew, you've gone too far. If you're in the Psalms, you need to keep going. Jonah, chapter 1. I will read it to you now. If you're still turning, listen so that you're not lost. Verse 1 of Jonah 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Please tell us, For whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. Yahweh, when you see it in capital letters there, I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will be calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they cried out to Yahweh and said, We pray, O Yahweh, please do not let us perish for this man's life, and do not charge us with innocent blood, for you, Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, and they threw him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and took vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I used the word Yahweh through there. Number one, it's textually accurate, but also to make it clear that these were pagan people calling upon the name of a God that they had only heard of. Because of what Jonah had done. Now, if you're wondering this morning, what exactly are we doing in the book of Jonah? Your confusion is probably coming from the fact that last week we were talking about King Saul and King David. Well, let me bring you up to speed. After David dies, his son, the great, the famous King Solomon, begins to rule. And Solomon is the most prosperous king in the history of Israel as a nation. Some would say the history of the world. He is also given great wisdom by God, which leads to this prosperity. So the first three kings of Israel, if you're following along here, King Saul, King David, King Solomon. Before that, they had 400 years of judges without a human king. Israel was a nation, but it wasn't a kingdom. 400 years of judges without a human king. And before that, they were in Egypt for 400 years. So it's not difficult at all to draw a line from the book of Genesis 
uh, all the way to the story that we're at today in the story of Jonah to King Solomon's time where we have these divided kingdoms. Here's how you do it. Abraham had a son named Isaac who had a son named Jacob. Jacob is given the name Israel because he wrestles with God. He has sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel, and they migrate to Egypt because of a great famine. This is the story of Joseph and the coat of many colors. After 400 years, they find themselves being persecuted in Egypt under the Pharaoh. Moses leads them out. That's the Exodus. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years because of their constant rejection of God, even refusing to go into the promised land once he brought them there. But after 40 years of wandering, Joshua takes them into the promised land. They live in the promised land, as I've said, for 400 years without a king. They are helped uh, at various times by judges, men whom God raises up. These judges help turn the people away from foreign gods that they worship. They deliver them from their enemies that God is judging them with. And then they keep them faithful to the one true living God for the duration of their lives. And then the judge dies because he's only a man. And when the judge dies, the whole pattern repeats itself. The people eventually go to worshiping the false gods again. God eventually judges them by the oppressors around them. They cry out for salvation. God raises up a judge. The judge saves them. They do the right thing for a while. The judge dies. Rinse and repeat for 400 years. That's the cycle. Now, Samuel is their last judge, and he gets old. And the people demand a king before he dies. They anticipate that he's not going to live forever because they're very wise. And they say, give us a king before you die, um, which feels like a rejection of Samuel. But God tells him, it is actually me. It's actually the Lord whom they are rejecting. And so God gives them a king like all the other nations. And that king is King Saul. We saw this last week. God inevitably rejects King Saul for behaving like all of the other nations. And then he gives them a king uh, that he intended for them to have all along. They had merely waited upon the Lord at Samuel's death. He had King David in the ready. Uh, he gives them a king in David who is not like all of the other nations, but a king after God's own heart. And when David dies, his son Solomon rules. It's not hard to follow this line. It's really only a few names and a few stories that you have to remember. Now, <clears throat> for all of Solomon's greatness, he had miserable faults. Um, we get a summary of this in 1 Kings 11. We'll be kind of in 1 Kings 11-ish for uh, a, a little bit here. If you want to turn to 1 Kings 11, or you can just listen, I'll read it to you. But for all of Solomon's glory, he had miserable faults. I'm just going to read to you the first 13 verses of 1 Kings 11. It summarizes it better than I could. It says, But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Sidonians, and the Hittites. Now, you hear all those people groups, and they're not Israelites, but when you hear all those people groups, what the scriptures anticipate you hearing are all of the gods of those people groups. And it says, from whom, the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Why? Because God is racist? No. We get the explanation of why. Because God says, surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines. This was evil. This is lust run amok. And his wives turned away his heart, for it was so that when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not loyal to the Lord. And there it is capitalized again, to Yahweh, his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, 
the goddess of the Sidonians. After Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill east of Jerusalem. Get the picture here. And for Moloch, the abomination of the people of Ammon. There is Jerusalem where the temple of God rests, where the priests of God are offering sacrifices to the one true living God who has put Solomon on the throne, who has brought this people into this land, who has saved them time and time and time again for a thousand years. And right outside the city on a neighboring hill, the priests of Chemosh and Moloch carry on offering their sacrifices to the pagan gods who are against Israel. And you say, well, okay, but it's all just fairy tale stuff. No, no, no. I don't know what Solomon tolerated in his day, but Moloch was worshipped with human sacrifice. Specifically with infant sacrifice. We read about these gods and these names and we can be forgiven for saying, well, you know, they're all just different things with different names, but we're all one and our beliefs are all one and our faith is all... That's nonsense. These are evil things. These are dark, morbid, terrible things. Solomon loves his wives, and they want to worship to their gods, and he builds them a place to do it. Verse 9 says, So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. That's two more times than God has appeared to me. And had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, here's his judgment. Because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father, David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. Remember, God had made promises to David. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, whom I have chosen. Many people don't realize this, but there are really only three kings that reigned over the kingdom of Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon. Really only three. And the kingdom of Israel only lasted about 100, 120 years because after Solomon dies, God does exactly what he told Solomon he would do because of his idolatry. He tears the kingdom away from Solomon's descendants. He takes, God takes the lion's share of the land and most of the tribes and the peoples of Israel and they become their own kingdom in the north called, and I know this is confusing, Israel. They keep the name Israel. They rebel against their king Solomon and the, like 90%, it's like most of the people and most of the land revolt and we're not going to be under this rule anymore, we're going to call ourselves Israel in this new northern kingdom. And the city of Jerusalem, which is in the south, and the land of Judah becomes its own kingdom called Judah. So from this point on, when you're reading through the Bible, Israel is this new northern kingdom that is pulled away from God, and Judah is the southern kingdom where the temple is. These kingdoms have two different kings, obviously, two different systems of worship. They are often at war with each other. They are not a unified kingdom anymore. And you say, why? Well, because in the time of the judges, when the people were without a human king, in God's view, they still had a king. It was him. And a king's fundamental job is to exert justice and judgment on the people so that they continue to do what is right in living with each other. But when the people reject God as king and they say, give us a man to be king, God lets them have the man. And here, their kings have thrown off the law of God. They're no longer upholding the law. The law said, you will worship... The Lord your God. You will have no graven images. That, the king was supposed to uphold that. 
When God would raise up these judges prior to these human kings, that was God as the king through a judge doing what a good king was supposed to do, execute judgment and keep the people faithful to the law. The people didn't like it because they just wanted to rebel over and over again. And they responded to a human being. They wouldn't respond to God as their king. But God, throughout those 400 years of the time of the judges, was doing what a king should do. Uphold the law. Uphold justice. Now that they've got human kings, those men are just like us. Completely fallible. And prone to degeneration as time passes and generation gives way to generation, gives way to generation. Each king less faithful than the one before. Solomon rejected the law of God. He'd rejected the law of Israel. He went after other gods, and now the whole kingdom would suffer for it because kingdoms suffer when their kings do evil. So Solomon gets old and he dies. The kingdom passes to his son. His son's name is Rehoboam. Rehoboam is a fool. He acts like a fool. The northern tribes, the main group of people in Israel say, we are not going to be treated this way by Rehoboam. Rehoboam doesn't listen. Instead, he thinks it's a good idea to go ahead and send his tax collectors up there. They kill those guys. Rehoboam's about ready to go to war. He's deterred from going to war with this breakaway kingdom because he's not going to win. And we have these two separate kingdoms. They make a new king in the north. His name is Jeroboam. It's confusing. You don't have to remember the names. King in the south, Rehoboam. King in the north, Jeroboam. Rehoboam from the line of David. Jeroboam, not from the line of David. And so now we have a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah. Okay? And the temple of God, the worship of God, the priests of God, the city of Jerusalem, the capital... All of that is in the southern kingdom, which is effectively a city-state. Now, it's just a small territory with a major city. It's all in the southern kingdom. But what do they do in the new northern kingdom? They make their own capital to replace Jerusalem, Shechem. They build other fortified cities to replace the fortified cities of the old kingdom. They make uh, a new king. Jeroboam, who's not the son of David. But they still have one big problem. New king, new capital. According to the law of God, the Bible, the people of Israel had to travel from wherever they were in the land of Israel to Jerusalem, to the temple, multiple times each year to worship before the priests the one true living God who had saved them from Egypt, who had rescued them time and again, they had to migrate to Jerusalem multiple times a year. And Jeroboam, the king of the north, hears this, and he thinks, if my people are regularly leaving my kingdom to go down south to the kingdom of the Jewish king in the south and offer sacrifices there to the Jewish God, then eventually my kingdom is going to fall apart. They're going to be faithful to them again and not me. Here's the description. This is 1 Kings chapter 12. Just read verses 25 through 33. It says, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim, and he dwelt there. Also he went out from there, and he built Penuel. Jeroboam, this king in the north, he said in his heart, you know, he's thinking about this. This bothered him. He said in his heart, now the kingdom may return to the house of David. It's possible that they throw me out and that they go back to Rehoboam, the king in the south. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of the people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they'll kill me. And go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Therefore, the king asked advice. Made two calves of gold. Sound familiar? This is a 850-ish years removed from Aaron at the mountain of God in the wilderness with the golden calf. So still wrestling with the same stuff. 
made two calves of gold and said to the people, it's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. It's too, it's too much of a sacrifice to go worship God. You ever felt that way before? Be careful. Those are betraying feelings. It's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. He set one up in Bethel, Bethel, the city named the house of God. He put the other in Dan. It'll be more convenient this way. Worshiping God should not be inconvenient. This would just be easier. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. He made shrines on the high places, and he made priests of every class of people who were not the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. The sacrifice of God, the feast of God, was supposed to be the 15th day of the 7th month. He makes his own copy of that, the 15th day of the 8th month. We'll worship these golden calves and make the sacrifices because they're the ones that saved us from Egypt. Now, in these last two verses, listen to how many times God emphasizes to us in his word that Jeroboam made this. Jeroboam did this. This is man-made religion. Listen to this. Here's the summary. So he did at Bethel, sacrificing the calves that he had made. And at Bethel, he installed the priests of the high places, which he had made. So he made offerings on the altar, which he had made at Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month, in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar and burned incense. If you have read the Old Testament prophets, and you read God rebuking the idolatry and the, the idea that a craftsman can form a God, all of this is happening. The people of God whom he has saved have replaced him with golden cows. The priest whom he has ordained and given laws to be holy, they have discarded and made priests from every class, from every people. It's no big deal to be a priest before God. The sacrifices he had called them to make by assembling together as one people during these feasts have been made convenient. It's easy. Religion shouldn't be hard. Trusting God shouldn't require sacrifice. It's too much for you, he says, that you should go up to Jerusalem. So, after Saul, David, and Solomon, Israel splits into two kingdoms, and the northern kingdom, led by Jeroboam, immediately makes new gods, new feasts, new priests, and does evil. The southern kingdom, where the line of David still reigns, we'll talk about it a bit next week, is led by a fool, and it quickly falls apart. Within five years of this break, the southern kingdom is raided, because why wouldn't a foreign king raid it? 90% of their troops have just left them out to dry. And all the wealth of Solomon is plundered. They are, at that point in time, essentially a subjugated people. Allowed their own little autonomy in Jerusalem, but not sovereign anymore. God does not stop being God to these people and these kingdoms. He keeps calling them to repentance by sending them prophets. He sends prophets to the northern kingdom and says, Look, if you turn away from these things... I'll save you. If you don't turn away from these things, it's going to destroy you. He sends that message to the northern kingdom. He sends that message to the southern kingdom. God is faithful to his end. He calls them to repentance. He warns them of judgment over and over and over again. He keeps calling them back. Many of those prophets are people you have heard of. Many of the northern kingdom prophets, people you have heard of, Elijah, Elisha, Amos, Hosea, and among them, Jonah, prophet in the northern kingdom lived about 130 years after the kingdom of Israel splits into two nations, long enough to be far removed from it and on the other side of great spiritual decay. Jonah did not live in a godly area with moral people. You become like the gods you worship. And he lived 130 years after they began to worship cruel gods 
This is the context of Jonah. Jonah, very famously, is told to go to Nineveh. And he decides, bluntly and frankly, I am not going to do it. No, sir. It's a bold stance to take against God. You think, why? (laughs) Why? Well, the reason Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh is important. Nineveh was the ancient capital city of the Assyrian Empire. It was a huge city. The Assyrian Empire was the dominant empire of the region. For a time, under King Saul, David, and Solomon, Israel had become the dominant empire of the region. But 130 years after that kingdom split, Assyria are the real power brokers in the land. But it was worth noting that uh, Nineveh, this great capital city, this evil city, was a mystery historically uh, for a thousand years. In other words, we had in ancient records that a place, the Assyrian capital of Nineveh was great and it existed. There's a description of it in the Bible. It's massive. It's an impressive city. And while historians and archaeologists had confirmed the Assyrian Empire as the great empire of this time period, they didn't find anything in the archaeological record about the city of Nineveh. They couldn't, couldn't find it. And so eventually they began to say, it's basically like Atlantis you know, the mythical ocean city. It was, you know, it's a, it was, it's a fabled city. And, and they would attack the scriptures. The Bible was often criticized for it. It was just one of those things that uh, unbelievers throw out there. Yeah, see, they believe in Nineveh like they believe in Atlantis or something like that. And then they found Nineveh. Um, probably, if you were paying attention in the news, you probably heard about ISIS and their capture of Mosul and the destruction of a lot of um, museum and archaeological work at Nineveh was where Mosul is uh, today, and they found it, and it was massive. And of course, all of those people who had attacked Christians and God's word came out and said, "You know what? The Bible is was actually reliable. We were wrong about this, and we're sorry. We won't do that anymore." That's not what happened. It was like, "Oh, well, we just couldn't find it. And now we found it. Let's move on." The Assyrians and the city of Nineveh were brutal. Now, most of the ancient empires of the world were brutal. They served brutal gods, and eventually you become like what you worship. I said it last week, I'll say it again. There are no gods like the God of the Bible. None, not even close. I challenge you to find one. You can look as far as you want, go back as far as you want. There are no gods like the God of the Bible who are concerned with love and justice and righteousness like the God of the Bible. You won't find them. Check any people group, any ancient group, Check. When you find one, come let me know. You won't find one. There are no gods like the God of Israel. The closest thing you get is if you look at something like Islam, right? One problem with that, Islam is basically a Judeo-Christian cult. It started like 500 years after Jesus. They took the Old Testament and they said, we're going to use this as, as our scriptures and then we'll just write a whole bunch of new ones 500 years after Christ through the prophet Muhammad and then additional people after that. But there are no ancient gods like the God of Israel. They don't exist. The Assyrians were torturers. They offered human sacrifices, which was pretty synonymous with the ancient worship of uh, all these polytheistic cultures. They decorated the walls of their cities with the skins and the bones of the people whom they had killed, which was a step further than a lot of the other civilizations around them. They were flayers. They took pride in in torturing and in skinning alive uh, their enemies. At the time of Jonah, the northern kingdom of Israel was facing an, existen- an existential threat with the Assyrians. In other words, the Assyrians had Israel in their, in their targets. They wanted to wipe them out. Um, and uh, here God is telling Jonah, his prophet of Israel, to go to the Assyrian capital city of Nineveh and to warn them of judgment. Verse 2 of chapter 1, God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Jonah doesn't want to go because he's a patriot. He loves Israel. God wants him to tell Nineveh that they will be destroyed in 40 days. That's perfectly fine with Jonah. That sounds good. 
Jonah knows, this comes in the fourth chapter, that if by some miracle he goes to Nineveh and the people of Nineveh acknowledge Yahweh and they turn away from their sins and they repent, he knows that God will not destroy them. He knows he serves a God who saves. This is his big complaint when you get to the end of the book. God, I knew this would happen. This is why I didn't want to come here in the first place. Because the people repent and God doesn't destroy Nineveh. Now, Jonah is not under the illusion that God is going to let him get away with this. This running away from him instead of going to Nineveh. This is why he tells the sailors who are in the boat with him, point blank, I'm the problem. Throw me overboard. This is not repentance. He doesn't pray to God in the boat and say, God, the storm, all these men's lives are in jeopardy. I'm sorry. If you turn, if you, if you calm the storm, if you let me get back to shore, I'll go to Nineveh and, and I'll do what you want me to do. There is no repentance in the boat. Jonah has accepted his fate. He is ready to die rather than go to Nineveh. He would rather die and see Nineveh destroyed than live and see Nineveh not be destroyed. But when they throw Jonah overboard, he doesn't die. (laughs) And that's unexpected in the story. He should have died. That's the point. Sometimes I will encounter someone. I don't know what they're thinking. They must think I'm I'm the biggest idiot in the world, but sometimes I will encounter someone, I'll be talking to them about the things of God, and they'll say something like, I just don't know, man, about the story of Jonah and a whale, I just have a hard time believing that, and I don't, like, they must think that I am the most stupid, gullible person in the world, like, you know, (laughs) because, like, for me, oh, yeah, it's no problem, yeah, it's, it's super easy, yeah, that's perfectly reasonable to me right? It is an unbelievable story by nature. Ancient people might not have been flying in airplanes over the face of the earth, but they weren't all idiots. Like, when Jonah came back from this experience and told Israel what happened and wrote down this story, it's not like they got to the part where he's swallowed by a fish and doesn't die, and they're like, oh yeah, that's perfectly reasonable. They understood fish and water and drowning and dying. The whole point is it's like it's an unbelievable story. Only God, a supernatural God, could do this kind of thing. I mean, you could get swallowed by a fish. You could even get swallowed by a fish very briefly and live. Things like that have happened. But you can't get swallowed by a fish and live for three days. It's unbelievable. That's the point. The question is not, is not, is the story believable? Clearly, it's only believable if God did it. The question is, why would God do this? If God is going to intervene into the natural world and do something supernatural, why? That's the question. Three reasonable answers. One, to demonstrate that he is faithful to his people, in this case, Jonah. Jonah does not deserve to be rescued. Up until this point, Jonah may have been the most faithful prophet that God had ever had. The evidence is not promising, but he may have been the most faithful prophet that God had ever had. But this is the hill that Jonah is willing to die on. This is the line he will not cross. He will not go to Nineveh. He will not do this thing. And God will not let Jonah die on the hill. Jonah wants to die on the hill. He's ready to die on the hill. Throw me into the sea and I'll die. On my way down, I'll think about Nineveh burning in flames. I mean, I don't know if he said that, but that's the sentiment here. God loves Jonah. He is not going to let his man die in rebellion like this. Second reason God does this miracle, to show his mercy on people who hate him and do not know him. This is the point God will make to Jonah at the end of the story. Now, this is God. I'm going to read to you from Jonah chapter 4. This is verse 10 and 11. The context here is Jonah has 
placed himself on a hill outside of Nineveh, and he is sitting there like in a lawn chair at the 4th of July, waiting for God to destroy the city. Light it up! He's ready to go. And God watches Jonah standing there, burning in the heat, in the desert. And he causes a plant to cover him with shade, and the next day he kills the plant. And Jonah is angry that God killed the plant. If you think, well, that doesn't sound reasonable, I've seen people get angry about less. About the fifth time I try to start my lawnmower and it doesn't start, I'm pretty angry, okay? There's a lot of injustices in the world that aren't bothering me in the middle of August, but when I pulled the lawnmower cord five times and it hasn't started, I'm upset. Here is the Lord speaking to Jonah, verse 10 of chapter 4. You have had pity on the plant for which you did not labor, You didn't plant that thing. You didn't make it grow. It came up in a night and perished in a night. And you have pity on this plant. You're sad this plant died. And God says to him, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and many livestock. And what I assume God has in focus here are children in Nineveh who aren't even old enough to know their right hand from the left. And here Jonah is ready to see the destruction of the entire city a fire and brimstone, Sodom and Gomorrah display, and God is saying, am I not allowed to pity Nineveh? If for nothing else, the sake of 120,000 children who don't know enough about life to discern their right hand from the left, and also what of all the animals just standing there, like, am I not allowed to have pity? You'll pity a plant. I can't pity the livestock. I can't pity the babies. That's God's point. God is a God of mercy, even toward pagan people who slaughter human beings for sport. He is a God who is merciful. To a people who serve evil gods, He is a God who is merciful. He is a God who pities. People who deserve judgment, and it is at the heart of God to save them. Again, our God saves. When I look around this room, I don't see many Jewish people. I don't see many ethnic Israelites. Now, I could be wrong. There could be a lot that I don't know about. All of our ancestors were once idol worshipers. You go back far enough in my timeline, you will find sacrifices to pagan gods, temple prostitution, sexual abomination. That's where I come from. That's where you come from. Be funny if Ancestry.com showed you that. (laughs) Evil. We come from evil. All of our family trees go back to these gods and these worships across the globe. Evil. We are all people of Nineveh. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Our God saves. And to us, whose ancestors were pagans, to us who have received Jesus, John 1.12 says, he has given us the right to become children of God. He has looked into the heart of Nineveh and adopted into his family is the second reason why God will do a miracle with the great fish in the book of Jonah. Let me give you the third. It is a glimpse of Jesus. It is a glimpse of Jesus. You say, what are you talking about? All right. In Matthew 12, during the life of Jesus, this is centuries after Jonah lived and died, when Jesus is born. During the life of Jesus in Matthew 12, the Pharisees, who have already seen lots of signs from Jesus, go to Jesus to confront him and to put him in the test in front of the people, and they say, give us a sign, just give us a few more signs to show us that you're the Messiah. Healing people, casting out demons, yada, yada, yada. Just get, How about another one? How about another one? We want a few more signs before we'll accept that you are the Messiah that was promised to us. And here's what Jesus tells them. This is Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 and 40. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
And you're scratching your head at that point saying, the sign of the prophet Jonah. I don't remember Jonah saying anything about the Messiah. Here's what Jesus says. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And here's what he's saying. God sent Jonah to save the pagan people. God sent Jesus to save the pagan people. Jonah, the religious leader of Israel, the prophet of God in the northern kingdom, rejects God's plan of salvation to the point of death, willing to kill himself whom God sent. Now the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel, are rejecting this plan of salvation to the point of death as well, willing to kill the prophet, the Messiah, whom God has sent. And just as God defeated the obstacle of Jonah's rejection and death, so he will defeat the obstacle of Jesus' rejection and death. For as Jonah was three days in the belly of a fish, so Jesus was three days in the tomb. And as Jonah rose to the salvation of the pagan people of Nineveh, so Jesus will rise to the salvation of the pagan peoples of the world. And that, my friends, is all of us. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, says Paul. I am a pagan destined for the wrath of God, destined for eternal hell, for the evil that I have committed against him, but the Bible tells me that in Christ I am a son of God through faith. It's Galatians 3.26. Do I believe that God would perform an unbelievable miracle to make that point? Yes. Yes, he did in Christ. I have no trouble believing he did in Jonah. Now, at the start of the service, I read read for you Jonah chapter 2. If you have your Bibles and you're anywhere near it, just flip over to Jonah chapter 2. I love Jonah 2. It's the most neglected part of the story of Jonah because it's the prayer of Jonah from inside the belly of this fish, this beast. It doesn't tell any more story. People like Jonah chapter 1, chapter 3, and chapter 4. That tells the story. Jonah chapter 2 is my favorite. Jonah prays from inside the belly of this fish, and I don't know if you've ever been fishing before. I cannot imagine a more miserable place to be than inside the belly of a fish. He is expecting to die and miraculously not dying. Dark, despair, cramped. I hope God kept him alive without breathing because that would be disgusting. Jonah is waiting inside the fish to expire and he should have died. The miracle of Jonah is not getting swallowed by a fish. It's that he lived And this is what he prays in verse 4. I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. Now, he does not mean the temple that's in Jerusalem. He's inside the fish. He has no inkling that the fish is going to put him back on dry land. If you were swallowed inside of a fish, you are not thinking escape. You are thinking death. And he is praying, I will look again toward your holy temple. He is talking about the real dwelling place of God. He is praying from inside this fish, no inkling he's getting out of there, but he prays, you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord. When my soul fainted within me, when my faith broke, I remembered the Lord. This is repentance that saves Jonah's soul. He is thanking God for giving him time to repent inside this fish. In verse 9, he says, even though he's about to die, he says, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I don't think he's talking about in Jerusalem. I think he is anticipating meeting God in a few moments. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. I believe he means heaven. But the very next verse says, 
So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Okay, Jonah, now that your heart is right again, I'm not going to kill you. Go to Nineveh and do what I told you to do. <laughs> Judging by Jonah's response in chapter 4, by the way, I'm not sure how he felt when he ended up on dry land again. I mean, his heart seems like it's in a good place in chapter 2, and then he realizes, I have to go do this thing still. <laughs> and he does it. But in chapter 4, he's pretty honest. I'm not happy about this. I don't know. It's a side note, I guess. But have your kids ever told you, you know, I, that's exactly what I should have done when they think you're not going to still make them go do it? And you're like, okay, I'm glad to hear that. There it is. Go do it. God loved Jonah enough not to let him get away with that. Um, We read last week from David in Psalm 16, David's belief in life after death in a resurrection. And he says, you will show me, this is Psalm 1611, you will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's after David says, one day my body's gonna rest. My, my, life, my life here's gonna end. And when it does, you will show me eternal life. I don't know what your hope is this morning. I'm sure that for some of us, our hope is not in God. Maybe there was a time when it was. Maybe there was a time when we were faithful to the Lord. Truly faithful. In our hearts faithful. And maybe some of us have gotten away from that. For others, there's probably people here today who've never been faithful to God. Never even tried. And for whatever their intellectual belief is about the person of Jesus or the historicity of Scripture... They're certainly not doing what God called his disciples to do, come follow me. They're here for various reasons this morning. Maybe curiosity, maybe someone asked them to come. Maybe they've been here for weeks and they're just listening, thinking, judging, measuring. I understand. But I will ask you, this path of life that David speaks of in Psalm 16, you will show me the path of life. This this path that Jesus speaks of in the Sermon on the Mount, Are you on the path to eternal life? Or are you on a path to eternal suffering in hell? There is no more important question than that for you. I said to a few people this week, we have an amazing propensity as human beings to set aside things that are incredibly important to our lives because they don't seem pressing. Uh, I grew up across the way in the parsonage, right next to a cemetery. My dad was a preacher. I watched him preach lots of funerals. Saw lots of dead people. Watched people mourn for them. Watched people cry for them. And 10 minutes later, they were laughing and talking about something else. Watched the people all leave the service in the cemetery while just the workers in the cemetery remain to cover up the body and throw the dirt on it and finish the job. We have a tremendous ability to ignore the most serious things in life because they don't feel pressing. Let me tell you something. This is pressing. It is appointed to man once to die, and after that, the judgment. There is no waiting period There is no time in the belly of a fish. This is mercy that God is showing Jonah. Joshua stands and boldly says, Choose you this day who you will serve. In the New Testament, the apostles stand up and they proclaim loudly with urgency, Today is the day of salvation. If you listen to this and you come to this worship service, and you hear from an almighty God in his word, and you walk out of here in rejection of Jesus Christ, your guilt is on your own shoulders. You are culpable for that rejection. John 3, the the very passage where it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should have everlasting life. That same passage warns us, and this is the condemnation, 
that the Son of God, that light came into the world and the world loved darkness rather than light. If you stand here and you hear me speak of Jesus dying on the cross to pay for your sin, Jesus as the risen Lord who will rule and reign and you will give an account of your life to, if you hear that, you are culpable for what you have heard. Today is the day of salvation. Unless you think, but I'm not ready, there's all this stuff that I have to do, or there's all this stuff in my life that would have to change. Here's the words of this tyrant Jesus, who looks at those who would follow him and says, come to me, all of you who are weak and heavy laden, I will give rest to your souls, for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. You will find in Jesus not a tyrant, not a dictator, not someone who would throw you into situations you can't handle and require of you things that you can't give. You will find in him a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That's his description. You will find with him a gentle Lord. You will find in him someone worth serving in your life. And apart from serving him, you will only serve yourself. And I promise you, you will not live up to that. The payday will not be worth it. If today you are hearing these things and you know, you know, I am going to hell. I am responsible for my sin. I have not trust Jesus. I plead with you. I'm not going to make some big emotional play where they pound away at the piano forever while we call people down here. Please come, please come, please come. I am pleading with you now. Come to me after the service. Grab a Christian after the service and say, I don't understand all of this, but I know enough to be guilty and I want to be saved. What must I do to be saved? That is a biblical question. What must I do to be saved? You will find the answer relieving. There is no pilgrimage to Mecca that you must make. There is no household God that you must set up. There are no candles and incense that you must burn. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, it is my heart's deepest desire this morning that people who do not know your son Jesus Christ as their Lord and their God will not leave this place this morning in that same spiritual death. That they will by faith trust your son Jesus, whatever that means. That they will trust you with the happiness of their life, not their own hobbies, projects, sins, and ambitions that they will trust you for fulfillment and purpose, not their own five and ten year goals, that they will find direction in your word among your people, not in all the self-help nonsense of the world around us, and that they will live a life that matters because of their faith in you. Father, you can do that transformation, but they are wholly incapable. I am not capable. I can save no one. But your son, your son saves. Father, please work with your spirit and bring children of the kingdom home. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.